What's up, Wildside besties and baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. All right, I'm ready when you are. Well, um, I just first want to say thank you so much for your willingness to come and let us interview you. I can't tell you how excited we are. Um, we already have a small, probably poor choice of word, cult fans, right, <laughs> who um, are, I mean, they're just like, we cannot wait. We cannot wait for this. And I mean, everybody is just completely stoked. And so I just want to thank you for giving your time and sharing it with us. Okay, not a, not a problem. Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. Uh, I I substitute teach quite a bit at a junior high, and I've been with these kids for a long time, right? My both of my kids are in junior high, and I was talking to the eighth graders, and I was like, guys, we, I had a really I'm going to have a really cool opportunity to to talk with an expert on cults, and it was really really fascinating to see how eighth graders like half of the class was like, do you mean like the Indianapolis Colts, like the football team? <laughs> You know, and then the other half was like, oh, I know about this. You know, my mom has watched documentary. Um, so even at that level, it was, like I said, very interesting to see that they were like, oh, that's really fascinating. And they even had a lot of questions. And I think that's normal, right? Like to have questions around this idea of like, what is a cult? Why are people in cults? So we're like I said, we're really looking forward to this process. I would like to start off, Rick, is in for you to just share a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and so our listeners know exactly who you are. Well, uh, my name is Rick Allen Ross, not to be confused with the rapper Rick Ross. I'm much shorter <laughs> and I'm an old white guy. So <laughs> so I'm not I'm not a rapper. And uh, I started my work in 1982. Uh, because uh, my grandmother lived in a nursing home where a very bizarre kind of fanatical religious group covertly infiltrated the paid professional staff with the agenda of targeting and recruiting elderly people. And I think they, they probably wanted to uh, take advantage of them financially. So my grandmother was confronted. She was very upset by that confrontation and she made me aware of it. And then I became uh, an activist. I thought it was outrageous that this group covertly came into the nursing home. If, if they wanted to preach, they should go in through the front door and go because people wanted to talk with them, not to surreptitiously sneak in the way they did. Yeah. And so um, I became involved in committees and, um, you know, it just went on and on in my uh, early days in the 1980s. Uh, since then, I worked for a social service agency, an educational bureau, and then began doing interventions to get people out of cults, what has been called cult deprogramming across the United States and internationally. I've done 500 interventions, more than 500 today. Wow. And then starting in the early 90s, I began to testify as a court expert witness, 
primarily in custody cases involving cults, when one parent was involved and the other refused to be involved or left, and they were they were in a divorce battle and fighting for custody of the of of, of a child or children. So I w- I've been involved in many, many cases like that. I've been qualified, accepted, and testified as an expert in 11 states, including United States federal court. And then as my work progressed, I began to work with law enforcement. I've worked with the Justice Department, the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the BATF. Uh, in regards to the criminal activities of cults and and numerous uh, local law enforcement bodies. Uh, In 1996, I I launched what is now the Cult Education Institute, culteducation.com online, which is a huge archive of information free to the public um, Mm -hmm. about controversial groups and movements, some called cults. Uh, in addition to that, I wrote the book, Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out, which is all about my intervention work. Also, what is cult brainwashing? How to define a cult? And uh, how can people cope with a, a loved one that's in a cult? Uh, the book is uh, exhaustively researched. There are more than 1,200 research footnotes and an 18-page bibliography. So it's kind of a, a go-to, almost a manual. Dr. Phil mm-hmm. said, you know, this is like a manual. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he liked it because it had so much uh, reference and that if you wanted to drill down in something, you can in that book. And then for those uh, younger members of the audience who maybe are gamers, I was part of the development team that uh, put together Far Cry 5, which is a very popular video game uh, series by Ubisoft. And when Mm -hmm. Far Cry 5 was rolled out, I was part of that rollout uh, around the world. Uh, Far Cry 5, I think in the first three months, uh, sold about 350 million copies. So it was an incredibly... um, uh, it was an incredibly popular game. Uh, and so Far Cry 5 was uh, is on my resume, as is a film called Holy Smoke, which was directed by Oscar-winning director Jane Campion, starring Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. And it's a movie about deprogramming. It's kind of a humorous take on deprogramming. And I was hired by uh, Miramax Disney to be Harvey Keitel's technical advisor. He played a culty programmer. And probably people can see me in documentaries. I've been in about 30 different documentaries. So you might see me on Seduced, uh, which is about Nexium, or The Vow, which is about Nexium, or um, Holy Hell which is uh, uh, a documentary made about a group that started in Texas, ended up in Hawaii, and a leader who hurt a lot of people. So I've been involved in many, many documentaries, and I've, I've worked as an analyst for CBS News and, and also other news outlets in Japan and Canada as an expert consultant on cults. So I hope I haven't bored you, but that's that's kind of my career it's 
it's been 40 years since I started. Uh, so I started in 1982 and, uh, and here we are, you know, 40 years later. Wow. Rick, did you, in your wildest dreams, did you think that you were going to be 40 years into this when you first started? And you know what I mean? In 1982, did you have any idea? Absolutely not. I, I was, uh, I was working with my cousin in the wrecking yard business. He had one of the largest wrecking yards in, in the Southwest. And our business was to part out cars, warehouse parts and crush, uh, for metal. And, uh, I had no idea that, uh, my concern about my grandmother and what was happening in that nursing home, which I saw as I'll just get this done and I'll speak out about this. I had no idea that it would snowball as it has over the years to take me into the world that I'm in. And quite frankly, I had no idea that with the advent of the internet and social media, that cults would become prolific to the extent that they have, mm-hmm. and that they would be much more of an issue and a problem for for our country and countries around the world today than they were back in the 80s. Because mm-hmm. uh, there were people that really felt that cults were a passing phase and that they would fade away. Uh, and what I've seen instead is many of the groups that we identified and were called cults in the in the late 1970s and 80s are still in existence today bigger richer more powerful arguably and and that there are so many more and that it's almost like a day doesn't go by that i don't find out about another cult that's just new that popped up and somebody has twitter followers uh they're streaming uh, they they have followers on TikTok. They have subscribers on YouTube, and they are leading a cult and extracting money from people on PayPal and Vemo and whatever. So the the whole situation has escalated and morphed over the decades, and I I just can't believe how pervasive it is today. Mm. You know, Bailey and I um, talk a lot on our pod, excuse me, our podcast about um, advocating, speaking out. So I just wanted to say thank you for being a, a real life human example of what that looks like when you're like, you know what, something needs to happen. I need to advocate for my grandmother, you know, whatever the case may be, and that you've been able to touch and be such a positive influence and be a, you know, a change for the good with so many, um, with so many people. And I, I imagine worldwide. So I just wanted to take a, a quick moment and just say, thank you so much for your courage and your tenacity to do that. Cause that's something that again, Bailey and I are, are really passionate about is, is wanting to empower listeners and empower people. Like you truly can make a difference. Like you might not see it right now, right? Like it might be 40 years in the making, but again, just thank you so much for the hard work that you've put into this. Well, and I want to point out that there are so many ex-cult members now that have come out and talked about what, what happened to them. Um, and I was just, um, I was just watching, uh, India Oxenberg, who I've met and worked with uh, in the documentary Seduced, who was horribly 
uh, victimized by Keith Ranieri, the leader of Nexium, who is now yeah. serving a hundred and some year prison sentence. Thankfully, he'll die in prison. But anyway, uh, if it, th these people that have gone through this experience, that have come forward and shared what for many of us uh, would be too painful to share, I mean, uh, because there ha there was a time, I think we're getting past that, where it, it was typical to shame and blame cult members or to shame and blame women in particular who were in abusive and controlling relationships. How could you let him do that to you? You deserve him if you go back. And there was little, if any, careful analysis to understand the the dynamics of abusive controlling relationships. And now since the Me Too movement and, and the greater awareness about abusive controlling relationships, I think we can better understand what goes into that and the isolation of the people involved and, and how they have been gaslit, gaslit or gaslighted as we say, and manipulated uh, by the, the abusers that, that control them. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that if you can understand that dynamic, uh, just expand that out. And that is a cult. So a, an, a cult leader is like an abusive, controlling, malignant, narcissistic uh, cult leader. Uh, they frequently are sociopaths. They're often described as psychopaths, which mm -hmm. means they have little, if any, empathy or even sympathy for their victims. And these are the people that I have learned to deal with over a period of years. I've met many cult leaders, and honestly, they're almost all the same. Same personality, same dynamic, same uh, narcissism. It's, uh, it's sickening and at the same time illuminating to understand how much alike they all are. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my questions, and I'm sure you get this all the time, is if there was kind of like a common pathology uh, for cult leaders. And it's it jives with what you were saying with the personality disorder, the psychopathy piece. And they're also typically, I imagine if it's because as a therapist, I work a lot with personality disorders, specifically narcissism and that kind of thing. And I mean, they can charm anybody. They're very charming. They're very charismatic. They're very manipulative, but you don't get those tingly senses that they're being manipulative when it's happening until you are removed. You look back and you say, holy crap, this whole time, this was an under layer of total, total manipulation. Absolutely, Bailey. Nobody says, oh, gee, I really want to join a cult. What cult could I join that could take my money, exploit me for free labor, maybe even sexually abuse or beat me up? I mean, that's what I want. Nobody joins a cult knowingly. So mm -hmm. it's like a bait and switch con. Uh, you see something, this bright, shiny thing dangling as the bait in front of you. We're going to make the world better. It will be more ethical. We serve a higher purpose. Help us to clear the planet blah 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 and you think this is wonderful i'm gonna i'm gonna help people i'm gonna make the world a better place this is my idealistic pursuit uh and i feel special 
and blessed mm -hmm. to be part mm -hmm. of this. And then, of course, many cults use religion. So they'll say, oh, you know, this is what God wants us to do. Uh, this is what Jesus really wants. Uh, the Holy Spirit led me to tell you this. And so people believe that what they're following is God. Uh, they're following the Bible. When in fact, what's really happening is that's a mask. And behind that mask is a cult leader who is using that facade in order to trick and trap people in a destructive cult. Mm -hmm. so, so what you always want to look for, I would call this the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult. And I have a chapter in my book dedicated to this, which is, uh, I think, the core el elements of any destructive cult. And this was originally um, written up in a paper, Cult Formation, by a psychiatrist who taught at Harvard, and it was published at Harvard. And the, the title of the paper is Cult Formation by Robert J. Lifton. So there are three core, core characteristics. Number one, you have an absolute totalitarian leader without any meaningful accountability who becomes an object of worship as the original principles that supposedly were what the group was all about fade. And, and that leader is the defining element and driving force of the group. Whatever he says is right is right. Whatever he says is wrong is wrong. And that's the single most salient feature of a destructive cult. And then number two, that leader uses identifiable coercive persuasion, influence techniques, thought reform to gain undue influence methodically and systematically over his or her followers. And then mm -hmm. finally, number three, if this is a destructive cult, the leader uses undue influence to exploit and do harm to the members. So that may vary by degree from group to group. For example, it could be financial exploitation, free labor, intentional infliction of emotional distress, family uh, estrangement, social isolation, uh, causing psychological damage. But then it can escalate to medical neglect, uh, physical and sexual abuse, and criminal acts and violence and even death. So the worst case scenario would be Jim Jones, Jonestown. And we can see this in another group that has come into the news, which is called Good News International Church, led by Paul McKenzie in Kenya. Uh, over 400 dead people that followed McKenzie he told them the end was coming. They needed to fast and pray. They starved to death. Their over 400 bodies have been recovered from the isolated compound he, he ruled over in Kenya. And many of those bodies are children. So that's yeah. another very despicable, horrible thing about destructive cults is that if, if you are so um, inclined to believe that cult members actually choose to be in a cult, okay, fine. You think that. I would, I would disagree with that. I would say, no, they do not choose knowingly to be involved and are tricked into involvement. But having said that, the kids involved, they don't choose at all. Like mm -hmm. Leah Remini, 
uh, the television sitcom star. She was eight years old when her mother took her into Scientology, uh, which has been called a cult. So, so there are all these children, uh, over 200 children died in Jonestown in 1978 uh, because the leader decided it was time to go. And there was a mass suicide and almost a thousand people died November 18, 1978 in Jonestown. And we've seen that phenomenon repeat in other suicides and other cults. And frequently it involves kids and kids die from abuse. They die from medical neglect. Right now, you may know there's a story of six adults. I think, excuse me, four adults, two children have disappeared in regards to a group called the University of Cosmic Intelligence, led by Rashad Jamal White, who's in prison for child abuse. And these mothers and, and parents have disappeared with small children. No one knows where they are. And the suspicion is that they are being directed and controlled by a man who is in prison, Rashad Jamal White. So children are completely helpless. They are brought into cults by parents. They depend upon their parents to protect them and make uh, value judgments for them, uh, make choices in, in their best interest. But when parents are under the undue influence of a cult leader, uh, they are not thinking critically or rationally. And frequently what happens is that children are involved and children suffer. And that's another dimension to the cult uh, phenomenon that I think people don't often think about. Um, that's it's so fascinating. I mean, I think that goes without um, being said. So, Rick, a little bit, I'm going to take it upon myself to tell you. So my sister um, works extensively with addiction and she's absolutely amazing. She's so talented. I'm going to toot her own horn. I'm going to toot her horn because I know she won't toot it. But you know, when you're talking about this, when you were like, um, you know, when somebody is under that influence of a cult leader, um, they they act in a way that might not be normal um, pre, you know, cult involvement. And I just kept thinking, I, I hear Bailey talk about this so often in the in the realm of addiction, where it's like the sober individual probably would never. But when that person is in his his or her addiction that's when these things become possible do you see that there there it almost is like an addict an addiction for these people that are in a cult i know that's a bit of a stretch but i, I, I don't quite see it as an addiction in any conventional sense let's let's uh -huh. you know clarify a few things first of all uh the drug dealer uh the liquor salesman at a liquor store is not uh, um, trying to manipulate their customer base. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not going to tell people, don't see your family, don't have anything to do with your old friends, uh, stay with me, uh, live in group housing, uh, come to constant meetings with me to reinforce mm -hmm. you as a, as a client. I, I, I just don't see that in the uh, liquor business or the, or the drug business. Almost like that hijacking stage, right? With addiction, it's like your brain is hijacked and you act against your better morals and values. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say, Chelsea? It's almost like yeah. a behavioral form of a, of a hijacking 
with your frontal lobe or your moral status or let me just say this uh in answer to chelsea's question i think i think that what i would say is let let's take a drug or alcohol intervention as opposed to a cult intervention when you do a drug or alcohol intervention i think there's an implicit uh given or an understanding that heroin is not good for you that Mm. uh drinking a a quart of gin a day is not healthy uh Mm. whereas when you're dealing with the cult member the cult member is going to say i think what i'm doing is wonderful it is in fact elevating me it's making me a better person and also during that intervention they're going to be texting with other members they're going to be texting Mm. maybe with a leader or someone who handles them and they're going to be saying, don't listen to anybody in the intervention. Uh, mm-hmm. Get out of there. Uh, they may even come to the door and bang on the door of the family home and say, uh, we, want to, we want that person to come out with us and leave and not be involved. Uh, that doesn't happen in a drug or alcohol intervention. So there are differences. Where there are similarities is that uh, the the leader of a cult does everything they can to engender dependency. So mm-hmm. that learned dependency is very similar in that sense to the dependency of a drug addict. They feel they cannot live without the group, without the leader. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. drug addict goes through withdrawal and says, I can't live without my, my substance uh, abuse. Uh, also, I would say there's an element of craving ecstasy that that may be part of it. In fact, there's a book written, Craving Ecstasy, that likens certain religious experiences and spiritual experiences to uh, a drug addict who is basically grooving their brain uh, through repeated drug use, uh, which is why it is difficult to cease that drug use because you crave that ecstasy. Or as drug addicts will say, I'm chasing my high. I I want to be high like I was the first time I used drugs. And and of course, then they're playing a balancing act regarding withdrawal. Uh, The cult member also may have gone through initial kind of love bombing honeymoon phase where everything in the group seemed euphorically wonderful and uh, everyone loved them and seemed to give them this unconditional love. Uh, and so they, they deeply uh, desire to get back to that place or they feel that if they can be good enough and follow the edicts of the group to the fullest of their ability, that euphoria can return. So mm. kind of a high there. And there, there may be uh, it's been speculated synaptic changes in the brain oh, that interesting. Engender, engender a kind of spiritual or or a group addiction, uh, much the way that a drug addict is is addicted. But I think what typifies a cult member uh, and their behavior is how do you know when someone's under undue influence? They act against their own best interest but consistently in the best interest of the leader and the group. So when you see people acting in that pattern repetitively in a particular group, like for example, none of the uh, women mothers in the group are taking proper care of their child. They're 
uh, in, inflicting harsh corporal punishment on their child. Um, there is medical neglect of the children in the group. Uh, and you know that's not in the best interests of the mother or the child, but it's consistent with the, uh, with the rules and edicts of the group. Then you, you see this pattern of undue influence. Mm -hmm. And and this sounds so much like the two thoughts that I have is a, a common reference to like domestic violence, right? And one of, I think, the biggest misconceptions with people who get into relationships that are, you know, manipulative or violent in nature, I think, one of, again, the biggest misconception is that these people are naturally vulnerable to that. But I can't tell you how many men and women that I've worked with who come from a, a, a domestic violent relationship. And before they got into that, they were high functioning. They had really good, solid self-esteem. They had family support. They had good networks. But like you said, the perpetrator, for lack of better words, is able to find that the tiniest chink in the armor. And it just, it's like an insidious infection. And it just seeps in and it's so slow that these people eventually turn into somebody completely against or, or opposite of who they were when they first met this individual. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that you can use that as an analogy to understand cult members, uh, because all of us have chinks. Every single one of us have vulnerabilities. And, and what the cult leader is adept at and really, uh, Keith Raniere was a savant when it came to manipulation and gaslighting. And he could smell, he could, he could smell the vulnerability of people. He could hone in on it, he would figure out what it was, and then he would drill down into it. And so it's a question of, in many ways, timing, because we all go through bad patches in our lives when we're more vulnerable than we would otherwise be at another time. Maybe we lost our job. We went through a, we're going through a divorce. Uh, we flunked out of school, whatever the, the problem is. We, we have a chronic illness uh, that, that we can't seem to uh, deal with that is plaguing us. And whatever that vulnerability is, along at an at a inopportune time comes someone genuinely convinced that the group they're involved with is the, the panacea, the cure-all for everything. And they come to you and they say, I wanna help you. Can I help you please? Please let me help you. I want to share with you what has helped me. And it can help you from whatever your problem is. And at that point, you're looking for relief. You're looking for answers. And this person comes along and it might be a coworker, it could be a relative, it could be a sibling, it, it could be an old friend and this person or a romantic interest. And they come across you at a time or they come to you at a time that you're vulnerable and they tell you what they genuinely feel as a true believer is the answer and you trust them. Mm -hmm. And so you go to the initial meeting, the activity or whatever, having no idea that you're getting involved in a destructive cult. And let me tell you, Bailey, I have deprogrammed five medical doctors. 
One was an orthopedic surgeon, one was an anesthesiologist, one was a, a pulmonary specialist. These were not stupid people. Mm -hmm. They were conned. They were conned into belonging to a group that they thought was an answer to issues that they had or to the world being a better place. And they joined up and, uh, and then they found out much later uh, that this was a specious group, a questionable group. And then there was an intervention to literally deprogram them out. And they are medical doctors. I also work with a clinical psychologist who was in a horrible abusive controlling relationship. And, uh, and, and it was virtually impossible for her to get out. So her parents retained me. I came in at one of the intervals when her husband had beaten her up and she fled the home and she came to her parents and her, and her parents had been through this before and they brought me in and my job was to help her to understand why she should not go back. And it was very difficult. And this was a highly accomplished woman, a clinical psychologist, uh, and, and she actually thought and, and I don't say this to objectify her, other than to under, underline this, that she felt I'm ugly. And this was a beautiful woman, uh, about 30 years old. And, and uh, I, I just found it very interesting that she believed that what her husband had repeatedly told her, which is, you'll never have love like my love mm -hmm. you'll never have a man other than me you're an ugly fat person and she was not anything like that in fact she was the breadwinner she was the one that was accomplished he was a freeloader and the only thing he could do well was manipulate people yeah. and and so how many of us know somebody who was in an abusive controlling relationship I think practically everybody. And that is a, a miniature version of a cult. And I would call it a cult of two. The controlling abusive partner is the leader, the cult leader, and that leader only has one person. And what do they do to get that person under their control? They socially isolate them. Uh, you'll hear people say, oh, this lady I know, I used to be really good friends with her, but now she doesn't ever call me or anything. And ever since she's been with him in this relationship. Right. So, so that's what happens to people in a cult. They become cocoon. They become socially isolated uh, by the influence of the leader and the other members. And they're not hearing any alternative perspective. Yeah. All they hear is what the leader wants them to hear day in and day out if if it's a discussion about the group and the values of the group they might go to work they might even have their own apartment or house but when they discuss what the group is all about it's only with other group members that are reinforcing the leader's view and locking the person in and that's a, a big red warning light that someone's in something that's not good if they're becoming isolated, cut off, and inaccessible. 
as a result of their involvement in a relationship or as a result of their involvement in some new group with some new leader. Hmm. Rook, I, I feel like you probably know that this question is coming, um, but when you talk about deprogramming, and I'm sure that you could probably spend just hours upon hours talking about what all the ins and outs of deprogramming. Can you give us kind of the cliff notes or, you know, like the, the quick version um, of essentially what, I mean, I, I think we know what it is. We can kind of piece together, but like, what is your role? What do you, what are some of the techniques that you do um, when you are asked to, um, deprogram and also are you asked to deprogram or are there situations where you take it upon yourself that you're seeing something and you're like hey if you don't mind i would like to work with you how how does that work no it's always by request and it's always on a voluntary basis uh, years ago there were involuntary deprogrammings, and that would be when someone was held against their will. And there still are with minor children or uh, court-ordered conservatorships, uh, but that's rare. Uh, typically what happens is a family will retain me, a spouse will retain me, uh, adult children of a parent who's involved in a cult will, will bring me in. And uh, it begins like a, a substance abuse intervention as a surprise. You don't talk to the cult member and say, oh, gee, by the way, on Wednesday, could we get together for a cult intervention? No. Right. Because then they would talk to the leader. They talked to other members who would sabotage any effort that was being made. So it starts as a surprise. But after that point of initial surprise, uh, it's up to the family or those concerned to persuade the person to stay. And they stay because they they decide, I will stay. And many of them will say, I'm staying because I want to prove to you all that I'm not in a cult, that this is a false alarm, uh, or I want to stay because I love you. And if you're this concerned about me, I'll stay because I care about you. Uh, but I'm not staying because I think I'm in a cult, because I know I'm not. That's what they'll initially say. So then from that point forward, we're talking about typically three to four days, eight hours a day with, break, with, with breaks being taken, uh, which would come to 24 to 32 hours typically of work to cover a discussion that is educational in nature. We're not talking about therapy. We're not talking about counseling. We're talking about education. And that education breaks down into four primary blocks. One, defining what is a destructive cult. Two, discussing coercive persuasion, thought reform, and influence techniques. Three, uh, discussing what may have been kept secret by the group or leader that is withheld information that the person should know in order to make a more informed decision about their involvement. What did the group not tell you that you should know or that you must know if you're going to make a informed decision about your involvement? And then finally, number four, fourth block, why is your family, your spouse, your, your kids doing this? What are their concerns? 
and the family is or or those concerned are always present so they're going to interject at different points for example they're going to say why i'm concerned or they're going to say what i found out about the group that you should know and i have this research material or they're going to say oh yeah what rick said about defining a destructive cult or about thought reform techniques resonates with me based on my interaction with you. And when you brought over one of the other members and I met them and the way that things went in our conversation, I, I think that I saw that, or I went to a group meeting with you and I saw that. So, so it's a, a family intervention typically, and people that are concerned are sitting through it and it's going to take three or four days. And then hopefully at the end of that time, the person will say, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to go to any more meetings or be involved in this group for a while. And I'm going to reflect. I'm going to do more independent research. I'm going to read and so on. Or they may say, now that I know what you've shared, I'm done. I'm done. And so about 70% of the people that I work with will decide to take a break or leave entirely the group at the end of the intervention. Okay. Uh, but about 30% will typically leave in the first day and say, I don't want to participate or they'll leave uh, early on. Uh, rarely will they stay three or four days and then decide, yeah, the group is fine. Uh, that's very unusual. And if they do decide to take a break and leave, very few of those, less than 1% historically of the people I've worked with, will then later somehow say, well, I changed my mind, I'm going back. Uh, so that is pretty much the intervention process. And uh, as I said, I've been doing these interventions for over, uh, well, it's been over 40 years and um and i've done over 500 of them and it's uh, very grueling very difficult emotionally and very stressful for the families and for the individual that's involved in the group nobody wants to believe that they've been conned and typically someone who is in a destructive cult feels that it's the greatest thing in their life and when you talk about them letting go of that there's this fear of emptiness, this fear of a void. Again, very similar to an abusive controlling relationship. What am I gonna do now? I've given 20 years of my life to this person. Uh, who am I gonna be with now? What will my life be? I'll be alone. So there's fear of the unknown, fear of the void that is going to be left uh, if the person leaves. It's tough. It's really, really tough. Yeah. Now I've heard you say, Rick, uh, destructive cult. Is there such thing as a constructive cult or is that just an oxymoron? Yeah, I think so. I think you can, you can look at groups like soul cycle and CrossFit and they are very cult like. Yeah. They, people call them cults all the time. The, the Texas A&M Aggies are a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I don't think they have a, an identifiable charismatic no. leader, but yeah, they can be like no. that. I've dealt, with some, I've dealt with some Aggies. In fact, I, I, I worked in an intervention to get an Aggie out of a cult 
that was actually active on Texas A&M campus. So, so, yeah, which used to be the stomping grounds for a lot of cults before the internet, uh, which would be target a college campus. They still do, but they're more adept at using social media and the internet now. But um, yeah, there can be benign cults. Uh, For example, uh, you could see Apple as a benign cult or Zappos as a benign cult with a charismatic leader like Steve Jobs, who would dress in black and with a hushed audience present a new product and people idolized and worshiped. And he was the defining element and driving force of Apple. And people questioned whether Apple could even survive beyond the death of Steve Jobs, but it did. And I would say that it was a benign cult in my opinion because Jobs gave me my iPod. And I love mm-hmm. I love my old iPod, I still use it. I have one of the last ones made. And also he made a lot of people that worked for him rich and he provided them with benefits and so on. But when you look at their campus in California, it's kind of eerily like a kind of compound. And Jobs could be a terror. He could be very uh, dictatorial mm-hmm. and harsh. Uh, but I would still see that as a benign cult. And, and there's this one group in Arizona that I have dealt with over the years. You may have heard of them. It's called Arcosante. And this is an intentional community founded by the architect Paulo Solere. And they make the Solere bells. Have you ever heard of the Solare bells, these beautiful bronze and clay bells that they sell all over the world? And the people that followed Solare believed in um, his uh, kind of philosophy, which was called arcology, still called arcology, which is the idea of taking people and creating what we would now call super blocks in cities where there's high density, Everything you need is within 15 minutes. We've also heard the 15-minute city conspiracies, you know, about how they're being impo- going to be imposed. But the idea being less need for cars, uh, more focus on uh, immediately accessible, uh, you know, uh, education, entertainment, shopping, and so forth. Paulo Soleri believed this was the wave of the future, and he created an intentional community north of Phoenix. People would go there, work for next to nothing, make the bells, believe in the philosophy. But Paulo Soleri never hurt anybody. And he died peacefully in his 90s and left all the assets of, of, of Arcosante to the Arcosante Foundation, which continues to this day. So I think it's possible to have a charismatic leader that is the defining element, driving force of the group, have a kind of group mindset that comes about through intense indoctrination and maybe even an element of social isolation. But if you do no harm, then um, it would not be described as a destructive cult, but rather possibly as a benign cult. And I, I think such groups exist. But when leaders have um, absolute power, it tends to, as they say, corrupt absolutely. Right, right. That was kind of my uh, thought or question, Rick, when I was listening to this is, 
in your experience, have you found in, in the research that you've done, have any of these, you know, no, notorious cults that did become um, malignant, did they start as benign? Or do you find that that personality, that that leader kind of always had um, a more corrupt approach? Like, did you ever see where it started out as kind of a no big deal and they just, then just got deeper and deeper and then it kind of turned sour, if you will? I would speculate about that. I mean, because, you know, we don't know what is the heart mm -hmm. of this leader. What is the mind of this leader from the very beginning? Uh, but Charles Diedrich who created Synanon, which was the drug rehabilitation community that became a notorious cult. Uh, he was the man that gave us the adage, uh, let today be the first day of the rest of your life. And Diedrich came out of the AA 12 step kind of mindset. And he created uh, Synanon, which became a horribly abusive, destructive cult. And, and ultimately he would be convicted of crimes uh, there was an attempted murder of, you know, of a lawyer who was a friend of mine, Paul Morantz, who represented the victims of Diedrich in a lawsuit against Synanon. Uh, they put a rattlesnake in his, in his mailbox and he almost died and had complications for the rest of his life because of that attempt uh, to kill him. So Diedrich may have begun with the idea that I'm going to help people, people are going to stop drinking, they're going to stop drugging. Uh, and he did help hundreds, thousands of people to stop their addiction. But in the end, the group became corrupted, I think, by the fact that Diedrich had no checks and balances on his power. Another example would be uh, the Duggars and Bill Gothard. I mean, the Duggars, I, I, I think the family, probably the parents had good intentions. They wanted to raise good, wholesome kids. Uh, and they followed the teachings of Bill Gothard and uh, the Institute of First Principles. And many families, Christian families, followed Bill Gothard. And later, Gothard would be exposed as uh, something of, uh, you know, just the worst kind of abuser. And, and he would, uh, you know, be implicated in, in scandals. And his organization would be under scrutiny, as it has been, as the Duggar children uh, that have left the family have exposed what was wrong with the Duggar family, and, and probably still is. Uh, but the point is, in the beginning, was Bill Gothard trying to help people? Perhaps. He really was trying to help people, and he earnestly felt that he could help people. And uh, probably where he missed the mark was that if he was truly a spiritual believing Christian, he would have left it up to God and the Holy Spirit rather than impose his totalitarian control upon people. And so in the end, maybe Gothard's frailty was he didn't have enough faith that God could change people. And so he thought, I need to help God. And I see this in many so-called Bible-based cults. It's that ego, man. Yeah. It, well, it's not just ego. It's this desire, I'm going to do God's work. Mm. I'm going to make them be good. I'm going to make all yeah. these rules. And as they progress, they lose sight of their original goal, which is to uh, share something beautiful 
with the people. So I think there are pastors, ministers, spiritual leaders that have kind of lost their way. And in a sense, uh, they think that they're the instrument of God and that God needs them to, to make people right. Mm-hmm. And that they're going to get it right, no matter how much pain they inflict. Because the, and this is the typical cult philosophy, the ends justify the means. Correct. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I, that could be a, a, a whole nother episode in itself, but yeah, I mean, as a Christian, you, you hear verses like faith without works is dead. Right. And so you get into this mindset of I've got to work, you know, I, I've got to be the hands and the feet and I've got to, I got to do something right. It can be confusing if you don't have a good, um, a good community, if you don't have a good mentor, if you will, if you don't have somebody who's like a sounding board, yeah, sounding board, Rick, I think, I think kind of the last thing that I am really wondering is if you personally have a sneaking suspicion that you might be involved in a cult either, you know, a cult of two or, you know, a verifiable cult, Um, or if you have a friend or a family member, what are some things that you can do to get off of that path? And and again, I know that that's a really broad question, um, but do you have kind of a step one that can help you maybe shift that like a preventative aspect right well i i would say you start testing Mm. you start you start doing things that test whether or not the group is authoritarian and uh if not totalitarian so for example Mm. what if i want to take a break how do people feel about that is there a legitimate reason to take a break or am i judged for that Uh, Do I feel that I can never be good enough? Do Mm -hmm. I feel that? Do I feel in my relationship uh, that I can never be good enough to to please my partner or that I can never be good enough to please this leader in my church or my organization? And do I feel like I'm a rat running on a wheel going nowhere? I mean, what is going on? And um, uh, if you're in a church, do I feel like my salvation is a question? Do I feel that I'm not sure? Why am I in a church? And maybe I've been in this church for years and I'm not sure that I'm saved. What the heck is going on here? I mean, the thief on the cross that was crucified next to Jesus knew that he was saved. That's such a good point. And, 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 and he, he was why don't I know that? Um, and also, let's get down to nuts and bolts. Is there financial transparency in the group that I'm involved with? Or do I not really know where the money goes? Uh, what kind of governance does the organization or church or group that I'm involved in have? Is it a totalitarian dictatorship where we have one leader for life and there is no accountability? through an elected board or checks and balances. I mean, what what is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and finally, am I socially isolated? 
in my relationship? Does my partner think that all my old friends need to be scrutinized? Uh, is he or she jealous of, of any of my relationships that I have? Is my family becoming estranged from me as a result of my in deepening involvement with this group or with this individual? Do, am I alone? Who can I turn to? Is it increasingly only other members of the group that I can talk to uh, or only my partner that is in my life by and large? So if you're feeling socially isolated, you're feeling you can never be good enough. You're feeling that there is no accountability for uh, the leader of your group. Or for that matter, if I question my partner or the leader, do they become furious? Mm -hmm. Do they become punitive? Do they get angry? Do they start yelling at me or, or, or judging me? Or do they calmly answer my questions and deal with my misgivings in a, in a reasonable and thoughtful way? You know, these are things that you want to look at. Now, if you have a, a friend or a loved one that's involved in a bad relationship or a questionable group and you're concerned about them, first of all, don't judge them. Don't uh, be confrontational. Instead, listen to them, be patient with them, be loving to them, make them feel that they, and this is what you want as an end result, that they feel that if they leave the relationship or they leave the group or the leader, that they have a support system, mm. that they have people that love them, that are their everlasting safety net, that though they think that the group has unconditional love or that their partner does, in fact, they probably don't, and their love is highly conditional, but you as a family member, as a friend, your love is unconditional, you're not judgmental, and you're there for them. And then you wanna read the literature. Of course, I'm going to plug my book, Cults Inside Out. And, 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 and yeah. there are other books as well. And you want to be understanding and know how cults operate, how abusive controlling relationships operate. And then you can consider your coping strategies as you can read about and also whether or not you feel that you want to do an intervention. Uh, what you may do is just wait for them to decide they're going to take a break because of something stressful or horrible that happened that they are shocked by in the group mm -hmm. relationship, that they step away for a while. And then you may, you know, want to expose them to what you've been reading. And, um, and, and again, don't judge them, don't blame them, don't shame them, because then you're going to make them feel that the only way to go is to stay because that way they won't be humiliated or, or ridiculed. Right. You want them to feel that they can walk away with their head up with no shame and no blame. Yeah. I love that so much. And I, I have to say, I just am so appreciative of this deep dive into cults because to be frank with you, to be completely vulnerable and honest, um, I was telling one of my friends and I was just like, I hate cults. I think cult leaders are stupid. I just hate it. I hate it so much. 
And I still don't particularly like cult leaders. Okay. So I'm going to be really, really honest about that. But I think like how you were able to explain it to me of being kind of paralleling addiction and, and domestic violence on, on some levels, like that was able to tap into, to my stuff and I can go, okay, okay. And now, and now, okay. I don't know what you did because you're charming and charismatic and (laughs) (laughs) you're getting me to be enlightened and now I'm giddy. So I don't know what you're doing here, Rick. Um, because right now I just want to be like, I'll be a deprogrammer with you. You want a therapist to come with you and deprogram other cult members? I'm here for it. So <laughs> good, good job, Rick. Maybe 40 years, maybe 40 years is too long for you to be in this business, Rick, because yeah. it's, it's a little too close to home. Bailey, the cult buster <laughs> is coming. But, yes, uh, but, but you know, you know, I, I have to say, and it this is something I'd want to share with people who have left an abusive controlling relationship or left a cult. Don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. You were taken advantage of, and it is not on you. It is on the predator, not on you. And uh, what you need to do is do the reading, do the research, understand what happened, unpack it, unwind it. Because if you don't, it might might happen to you again. I mean, I've met people, uh, uh, Mark Vicente, who uh, left Nexium, and he is one of the principal people that you see in the in the documentary series, The Vow. Uh, he, he was in more than one cult and he called me up after he left Nexium and he said, Rick, I think I'm a cult hopper. I'm going from one cult to another and I'm middle-aged and I can't handle it anymore. Help me here. And I said, Mark, uh, let's work through my book. We're going to go- cover it together. You're going to do some reading. It's going to take a while but it's going to be helpful to you to unpack what happened to you and stop uh, blaming yourself and, and thinking, oh, well, I left that group because she, the leader did this. Well, you know, it's not just one thing that she did. Uh, He was led by uh, this woman named Jay-Z Knight in a group called the Ramtha School of Enlightenment in Yelm, Washington, which has been called a cult. And, and he did a documentary. He's a documentary maker, very smart guy. Uh, did a, a documentary, became very popular, you may remember it, called What the Bleep. Mark Vicente did that, uh, equating quantum physics to the teachings of Jay-Z Knight, so, uh, which gave her a lot of credibility. I mean, it was a great documentary from the standpoint of his work on it. But Mark didn't want to go and join another group, but he did. He ended up in Nexium, and he said to me, Rick, Nexium was actually worse <laughs> than, than Ramtha. I mean, mm-hmm. Keith Raniere is in prison for over 100 years. Jay-Z Knight is still doing her thing in Yelp. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not doing horrible things like Keith Raniere. So, so my point is you need to stop the cycle. You need to figure out what they did to you and unwind it and know the warning signs and understand the manipulation to the extent that if anybody tries that on you, that you see it coming a mile down the road. 
and uh, it and it's very difficult to do because when we're in distress, when we're feeling bad about our our lives, about our situation, we we want to forget the warning signs. We want to just say no, no, it's it's not an abusive, yeah. controlling relationship. He makes me happy. Or, or or they're not red flags they're pink <laughs> yeah. no, they're pink flags and and they make me want to come deeper you know but but in reality we we need to really school ourselves on this uh uh one person described it as uh growing herd immunity if we as a society if we in in the united states increasingly talk about all of this, then even if we don't see it, someone close to us will. Because many times that's what it takes. We don't have the, the ability to step outside of it and see it by design. We are caught up in it. That's the predator's way, catching us up in it. And somebody that we talk to, and this is why they don't want uh, a predator doesn't want you to talk to people that aren't involved or that are not approved because they're going to give you an alternative perspective. They're going to say that jealousy that your partner feels is unreasonable. You're becoming increasingly isolated. Why is that? Why are you giving all your money to that group? Do you know where it's going? What's happening with that money? Right. And should you be more prudent and, and hold it in savings or whatever? So there are many ways that we can get our, ourselves out, but raising the bar on awareness across the board in the United States and around the world, maybe we could get to a point where, as one person said, we have herd immunity. I love that. I love mm -hmm. that. You know, Rick, Bailey, Bailey and I talk so often as what, what is our why? Why do we want to do a podcast like this? Why do we want to cover topics like this? And we have found um, in the, what we've been exposed to just on, on media, like I, I, I you know, social media, uh, Netflix, things like that. It's so sensationalized, right? Like it, it's kind of like, oh, that would never happen to me. Almost like this Hollywood effect. Yeah. And I like, I, I hope that we are not just throwing compliment after compliment and, and embarrassing you, but Rick, like what you have talked about has in a sense normalized it, you know, not that it's a normal thing, but it's relatable. And that is what we, my sister and I have been on such a mission of like, yes, this stuff is fascinating, but it can happen to you. These are things that you can know and the more you know, and, and these are how you can be helped and there are options and there are therapists and there are, you know, there are books, there are things. And we said it on, a, on an episode um, a couple of things back and we're like, even if we're just a voice coming out of your car radio, we want you to know, you know, whoever you is, that it's okay, like you said, you can come out of this. There are people who will love you. They will work with you. They're interested in you and mm -hmm. helping you. And I, I just, again, want to thank you so much. Like Bailey said, I'm over here. I'm like, I don't know how much I can help on deprogramming, but I'll like make flyers. I can make <laughs> you guys tea. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
No. And it, and I think it's just the work that you do is incredible. And I'm so grateful right now because I feel like a sponge that just was plopped in a bucket of water. Oh, fire. Um, like I just, you have done such a magnificent job of articulating and make it concise and understandable of like what this is, how real is it? It's not a spectacle. It's not fake. It's not hocus pocus, change the focus. I mean, this is a real thing that people experience all over the world all the time every day i mean you're one person and you've done over 500 deprogramming what incidences i guess i don't know the other word for that and and that's one person like you're one person who's done over 500 and just think of the magnitude of how many people are left that still need these services and still need this this expertise if you will and I would be grateful if um, at some point we can connect when we get off of here and you can give us a a short and quick list that we can put in the show notes for resources specifically for people who might be struggling with it. And obviously your book, like I'm seriously about, I'm like, where can I get this? Amazon, can I get it next day delivery? Is it a Kindle? Can I download it? It, it, All of the above. All of the above. There's even a Chinese version in in uh, complex Chinese. But but I love it. but let me just say it's available on Amazon. It's a Kindle download. There's a, a, a an Audible voice version. That's what I need. Thank you. And then there's also the paperback. And culteducation.com is the website that I launched in 1996. It is totally free. It has no uh, advertising. It's uh, the nonprofit Cult Education Institute. And there you can find under getting help, warning signs, uh, coping strategies, all kinds of information, huge archives. For example, probably the largest archive about Scientology online is available through through culteducation.com, which is a collection of historical documents articles, reports about Scientology going all the way back to the 1950s. And, and let's, wow. let's use Tom Cruise in, in a sense as a poster boy, because here's a guy who is one of the smartest uh, people in Hollywood. I mean, he's worth somewhere in the neighborhood of six to $700 million, which he earned himself from being a brilliant a visionary, a producer, actor. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing. He's a very smart guy, but he has been divorced now three times, uh, reportedly, arguably because of Scientology. Uh, His first wife, Mimi Rogers, left Scientology, divorce. His second wife, Nicole Kidman, didn't like Scientology, had a father who was a psychologist, divorce. Uh, His third wife, Katie Holmes, uh, became uh, very anxious about her daughter, Suri Cruz, being involved in Scientology, divorce. And, and, uh, and, And then Tom Cruise also has had relationships that ended because the woman he was involved with uh, didn't appreciate Scientology. I mean, look at this guy, smart, successful. He's got the world at his feet, but he's been through three very heartbreaking divorces and he's still all in with Scientology. Mm -hmm. Scientology has uh, eight 
uh, levels of, 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 of attainment called the operating thetan levels. There's OT1, OT2, all the way up to OT8. Tom Cruise is either an OT8 or an OT7. And uh, so this is the guy who really put the hours in with Scientology. He's hardcore. And even after three divorces, he's all in. And so yeah. it can happen to Tom Cruise. It can happen to anybody. Absolutely. Uh, you could, could go down a list like that of celebrities that have been involved in groups called cults. So mm -hmm. everyone should disabuse themselves of the arrogant conceit that it can only happen to somebody else. It can't happen to you because if you believe that you've already set yourself up to be had because yeah. you're, you're invincible. So you can walk into and be exposed to anything. You're not susceptible. Well, let me say that if we were not all susceptible to persuasion, there would be no advertising industry. <laughs> there would be no, so there true. Would be no, no negative campaign ads. I mean, because, yeah. hey, we can't be changed. We can't be persuaded. What's the point? So I would tell people, no, you know you can be persuaded. And that what we're talking about when we talk about thought reform and coercive persuasion is advertising taken to a level of intensity uh, and persuasion that is far beyond what you see in television ads and negative mm -hmm. campaign ads. And if you are subjected to that, uh, you, you very likely will crack eventually. I mean, John McCain, he cracked under the control of the Viet Cong. Uh, many Americans cracked in POW camps in North Korea during the Korean conflict, which led to research and the book written by Robert J. Lifton, Thought Reform in the Psychology of Totalism. Lifton answered the question, how did they do it? And because we had loyal American servicemen who were, as we have been, as we often say, brainwashed. So how did that happen? How did that happen? How does that happen? Lifton answered that question in his seminal book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And also Edgar Schein, a professor at MIT, wrote a book, Coercive Persuasion, that addressed the same question. So if it can happen to loyal American servicemen, if it can happen to John McCain, it can happen yeah. to anybody. Yeah. And, and you need to be ready. You need to be aware. Yeah. Be vigilant. Well, Rick, thank you so much. This has been, I have had so much fun just sitting here and listening to you share your expertise. I mean, I've just, I'm just kind of in awe of, of, of just your knowledge and everything that you've done in your lifetime. And I'm so appreciative of what you do. And more than that, I'm just so very grateful that you have allowed Chelsea me into your space and to share this time mm -hmm. with us that we can then share to our listeners. And hopefully it can be this gigantic ripple effect. And just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been phenomenal. Oh, I love it. Well, Rick, again, thank you so much. And I, I hope that you have the most amazing day. I hope you continue doing what you do big and small, write 18,000 more books, find Please. time, just, yeah. you know, never stop doing interviews and giving us information. And Chelsea is here. 
Chelsea's here to make copies. I'm here to be a therapist to help you deprogram. Just know that we are free labor for your for your benign circle, right? Well, thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Bailey. It's been uh, nice to meet you. We right. appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you, Rick. Rick. Bye. Hey, Wildside Tribe. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the The flip side. Thank you.